I learned a lot in my experience in India, not just about language and about uh, the needs of healthcare workers and health facilities, but on uh, food preparation and <laughs> knowing what food is safe to eat or not. I got very ill in Sitapur with Giardia and I lost some 20 pounds. But for me, I wasn't there because of Damagi. I was there because that was the life I wanted. And if there was an organization who was willing to support my time there financially and also give me meaningful work to do, then I wanted that to be a part of my life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Aid Evolved, a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. In this space, I'll be talking to people who've built their lives and careers at the intersection of these fields. We'll be sharing their stories, experiences, and lessons learned. I hope through these stories, we can help others like you who are looking to make a difference and trying to figure out if there's a better way to do so. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Derek Treatman. Derek is a Senior Director of Technology Solutions at VitalWave, an organization that helps others to deploy technologies for good. We'll be tracing Derek's story from being a fresh grad straight out of college to knocking on various doors to break into fields in which he didn't have any experience. And what I really enjoyed about chatting with Derek today was just the sheer will and persistence that this man had in order to pursue and ultimately land his dream job. We also talk about language and his lifelong passion for language learning and how that plays out in the words and communications he uses today in order to build bridges between people and organizations in the sector. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to get future episodes at aidevolved.com. And with that, let's switch over to our conversation with Derek. Here we go. Just to start us off, can you give an example of the kind of work that you do today, a project that you're excited about, and your role within that work? Sure. So I've been working in ICT for D or uh, technology for development for the past 10 years, and that's involved a variety of different projects. Some of, and perhaps a lot of the work that I've done in recent years is focused on disease eradication. I focused a lot on malaria, done some projects in HIV AIDS, and it's all focused on data, the use of data to improve the health programming within ministries of health, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. And a project that I've been working on for the past three years now is in malaria elimination. And as a technologist in the space, my role is to bring different organizations that are producing technology like mobile phone applications and data analytics platforms and notification systems and implementers who work with national malaria control programs in several different countries and pair the two together, putting fit for purpose technology in the hands of implementers and governments who can make use of those technologies to say, ensure that the coverage of a insecticide spraying campaign meets certain targets. I'd love to dive into the story of how you, you got into this sector. As I'm sure you have heard from many others and probably um, have a similar 
similar start yourself. Getting into the health and health technology for development space is not easy. It's not a given. Mm. It's highly competitive. There's very few spots. And you know, when compared to other industries, it's relatively poorly funded. There's a lot of it comes through charitable donation uh, from foundations or from taxpayers and aid agencies. So mm-hmm. there's it's difficult to to get a job in the space. And when I um, decided to get into health for development, it, it was a long process. Huh? Tell me more. I I had I was working right out of college. I was working in a hospital designing databases and information systems for medical research. Mm-hmm. I grew up uh, in a family of doctors, uh, so I was you know medicine was just a really comfortable place for me. Although I was an electrical engineer, uh, being in a hospital was like being almost being at home. I used to. <laughs> I used to go to the hospital after school where my mom was doing her medical degree um, and her she did a, a PhD in a, in a lab in the hospital. Um, and she was doing that when I was um, 13, 14, 15. So I'd go there after school and hang out in the laboratory and you know, fill, fill pipette trays and look at you know, gene assays. and Every high school kid's dream. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> What's remarkable about that is it sounds it sounds like you were fated or interested in technology and health at least the intersection of these because at that time did you did you know you would going into be going into engineering? At the time, I was fascinated with wireless communications. In fact, mm. I, I was fascinated with wireless communications um, around the age of seven or eight when I started to huh. take apart my home telephone. And TV, <laughs> much to my... Oh, your parents must have loved that. <laughs> yep. That was... Uh, I had some explaining to do and had to use my hard-earned allowance uh, to replace our family telephone. Uh, <laughs> they taught you about consequences as well. That, that's right. That's right. But I, I was fascinated by this idea that um, information and you know sp- speech uh, could be communicated wirelessly. Um, hmm. and, and not only just locally, but around the world, satellite communications fascinated me. And I, at the time, uh, phone, phone calls were quite expensive. Long distance calling in the U S cost a lot of money. Calling internationally was something that was just a dream. Um, and I, I had this you know belief that, ah, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to connect people around the world uh, global communications. If only we could talk to each other, uh, that would huh. that would make the world better. Like we would be able to understand each other and learn things and experience. More. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's incredible just looking back and and seeing, like you know, because I think I think a lot of us had that vision for how much the world should run better if you could just talk to the person who's on on the other side of the world. Um, and it's interesting to compare that to now when we can do it and, you know, what has worked and what hasn't in the years since then. That's absolutely right. It's it's a, I, I, actually quite amazing. I, today, I I feel like the, the dreams that I had as a kid uh, are in a way being realized. 
through these global communication networks that are basically free and nearly instantaneous. Um, and uh, right. it's kind of come full circle on me. We'll definitely have to get into that mm-hmm. <laughs> and your role in making that happen. But please go on. So I had uh, never actually put the two together, medicine and technology, until um, until I was working after college. Uh, you know, medicine mm-hmm. was something that was my personal. You know, this is what we talked about at home over dinner, and <laughs> you know, technology and communications was something for you know for my engineering side of the mind and something. Yeah, it's funny how universities are are so bad at teaching us how to craft careers of passion. It would never occur to you in, in school where everything is in its own little box that mixing things together could be fun and interesting. So um, when I was working in the hospital, really what got me interested in health for development was uh, travel. Um, I, had, uh, <laughs> I had never traveled as a kid. Um, I went to Canada to, to visit my great grandparents. That's international. <laughs> yep, that's true. As a Canadian, I feel I have to, I have to point that out. <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I, I went to Canada every year, but I never went outside of, of uh, North America. Um, and, uh, you know, very far, never went very far from the northeast of the U.S., in fact. It was only when I was in college I visited France for the first time and realized, wow, this is amazing. This is a, a totally mm. different language, a totally different culture, a totally different life that I knew nothing about. And I wanted to understand it. Um, and I wanted to to experience it myself. <laughs> I was working in the hospital in New York and thought, I need, I need a job. I need a, a, a profession that's going to take me around the world and give me the opportunity to learn uh, different cultures, different languages, and, um, and have, have an amazing global experience. I started looking around for job opportunities and I couldn't, I, you know, I didn't find any, or I didn't find hmm. any immediately. Hmm. And I started just doing research. I started to go in through medical informatics, peruse the forums of uh, international medical informatics um, associations. Hmm. I found um, uh, an electronic health record platform, uh, Vista. It's used at the at the Veterans Administration here in the U.S. The right. organization that developed it, or perhaps a subsidiary, had created a a global open source version that was internationalized. And I believe it's the most. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the most widely used open source medical record system? To the best of my knowledge. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, to mine as well. <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, they they it's been implemented in Jordan and um, a number of other countries uh, outside of the U.S. And there there was a push uh, by this this organization World Vista um, uh, that was sharing this this internationalized version of the. Of the, of the software to implement it in uh, or to get um, uh, implementations in uh, Southern America or Central and Southern America. Hmm. And so I started to you know, talk to these guys and uh, volunteer. And I went to a few meetings uh, with them and tried to find some kind of an internship or some kind of a job yeah. where I could be you know, sent somewhere, sent to Central America. To work on it. That's remarkable. 
And it's fascinating. You, like you, again, I, I have the sense that you and I have known each other for for many years, um, and maybe I've heard the story before. But it's like I'm just like hearing the the persistence um, that you had, and and definitely even when I, I first met you, you struck you struck me as a as a persistent individual <laughs> um, that has a has a dream and will like try to find your way in in the world. Um, and I and I can see that playing out in this story. That's definitely one adjective uh, I might use to describe it. <laughs> uh, in fact, I was so persistent uh, that when I failed to get any kind of paid internship or even an unpaid internship that, that granted some real work opportunity, I threw up my arms and said, you know what, if, I, if my dream is to uh, work in uh, Central America um, to uh, deploy electronic systems for healthcare, I'm just going to go to Central America. So I quit my job and I, huh. I bought a ticket, to, a one-way ticket to Panama. Um, I'm, I met with one of the World Vista folks who was uh, who was there at the time, and I started huh. I started going from hospital to hospital, um, cold calling their chief. <laughs> medical officers and chief technology officers. I'd just walk into the hospital and ask to speak to people until ultimately I would end up sitting down and speaking with their you know, chief information officer or whoever at the hospital. And I would talk to them about the CHR system. Huh. <laughs> and, and they had no idea you were coming, you know, you're like some, some no kid idea. from America just shows up. No idea. It's <laughs> just like, Hey, <laughs> and, and, wow. Uh, <laughs> Um, the, the, the short end of this story is it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Did you, did you have a lot of doors slammed in your face? I, 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 would... <laughs> I had doors politely opened for me and I had great mm. conversations with a modicum of interest, uh, but ultimately <laughs> no uptake. At the end of the day, I was, you know, 24, 25 years old, just walking in there, <laughs> to see what, what, what I might be able to do by myself. And, and that, that unfortunately... But what's funny about the story that you're telling is that it, it doesn't strike me as an, uh, you know, as an uncommon or an unreasonable story. You know, like there's so many people out there who, you know, want to volunteer, want to do good. And, you know, they'll like fly out to random country for a week and be like, hey, I'm here, you know, let me help. Um, you know, like it, it uh, uh, like there's something about, being able to listen when the hospital is like, yes, that's nice, but no, we're not interested. <laughs> Which I think some people hear that message and, and other people don't. Um, and it, it sounds like you heard that message um, even in your in your wide-eyed 24-year-old self. I did. And ultimately, uh, while I was there and getting no traction, I figured, hey, <laughs> why don't I just put all my efforts and focus on learning Spanish? Um, hmm. Because that'll get me an in. If I can speak fluently, then um, then perhaps I can have more more meaningful conversation and find a, you know find more of a more inroads, and uh, so yeah. I just started focusing on language and uh, and learning Spanish. That's definitely a a life skill. I think you mentioned earlier this business of of communication and, and connecting individuals. I imagine being in Panama, you could see the doors that would be opened by having access to that language in a way which might be a lot less visible um, when you're in the States. And going into other countries as well later on, uh, countries where languages spoken there are perhaps less widely spoken in the world, 
having some familiarity and the ability to say even just some small pleasantries um, really uh, shows interest and is meaningful to individuals in, in those countries who speak that as their native language. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have to, I have to share just the experience that you and I had traveling together in in India. And I think, you know, some of us like me are very are very timid, uh, you know, with with a language. Uh, but I remember you not not only putting in the you know taking the risk and putting in the effort of of speaking with anyone who was willing to speak back at you, even though you were learning the language and just picking up word by word by word, but also the way that that helped people to open up as they were talking to you, you know, like they could tell that you, you wanted to connect with them, even if you, if you didn't, if you spoke different languages. And I think that's something that, you know, particularly for someone who might be used to talking to others and coming from a position of power (laughs) or, you know, having language barriers stand in their way, I think was, you know, I I could see that that was an uplifting experience, whether it be the the cook (laughs) at the house that we were staying with or, or someone like that, that you were, you were trying to engage with. And the kitchen is the best place to learn a language. <laughs> we all eat food. We all know what an apple is or, uh, uh, or an onion or a tomato. And it's very, there are so many different things in a kitchen to point at and, and, uh, and to hear the word come back. Um, and uh, it, I, I found the spending time in the kitchen as a, a wonderful way to learn learn language and also learn mm-hmm. learn cuisine which is a big part of culture and really ties oh, everything together uh, so i spent a lot of, a lot of time in the kitchen with a dictionary <laughs> <laughs> so you're in panama you're you're learning spanish what happened then i left panama and went to mexico um spent uh six months or so there um traveling and learning spanish and um, uh, getting more and more this sense that language was kind of the key to my my future um, and and what I wanted to spend my time on. Hmm. I I had a um, I have a a close friend who called me up at that time and said, "Hey, you're learning Spanish, and you already know French." Um, French, Spanish, Chinese, and Arabic and English are the top five spoken languages in the world. You should just learn all of those. And I said, <laughs> hey, that's a fine idea. Why don't really? Yeah. I would not have the same reaction <laughs> to the same suggestion. <laughs> Maybe for you, Derek. <laughs> so he sent me the name of a school in Tunisia, in Tunis, uh, Mahatpur Giva, uh, school of language uh that had a good uh, internationally reputed uh arabic class so i bought a ticket out of mexico and headed to tunisia and in tunisia i spent um only a couple of months there i i met my uh future wife uh in the hallways of my arabic school um huh. and uh sounds like an important period of your life <laughs> it was uh it was certainly um a fortuitous one um, nice. And I, however, I didn't end up staying for too long in Tunis. Um, I ended up moving back up to France, and I went uh, to audit some language courses um, in a 
in a university, um, a French university. Uh, so I was studying, huh. studying there Chinese and um, uh, huh. Dutch. Wow, I don't even I don't even know Dutch was in the picture. <laughs> it, it's not. I'm learning something new about you every day, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all this time, all the time that I was kind of traveling and 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 learning languages, I was keeping my my thumb on the medical informatics. And um, at the time, you know, telemedicine was was being piloted in a lot of hospitals and. And that was a really fascinating topic for me. So I went to a, a conference and I found a, a conference on telemedicine in Luxembourg. I got a discount on entrance from the event <laughs> organizers. And, uh, and the keynote speaker was a fellow by the name of Carl Brown, who I'm sure you know. Oh, he and I have crossed paths a few times. <laughs> At the time, he was working for Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, I was really impressed with his French. And uh, spoke spoke <laughs> with him after his keynote and uh, told him that I've been basically spending the past year and a half or so trying to get into the field. And does he know anyone? <laughs> and uh, Carl introduced me to Neil Lesh from Demonkey. And right. within two weeks, I had a plane ticket back to Boston and another plane ticket from Boston to India with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is the part of the story where, where our stories intersect. Uh, and, I, and I remember hearing about Derek, you know, there's, there's this guy, he popped up in France somewhere, he's asking whether he can, you know, work for us somehow. And this was, you know, this was uh, like Damagi being an organization that uh, builds software for open source software for international development and global health uh, was at the time, Primarily composed of of software developers, um, you know, who's who like you know sat in sat in front of their computers and coded, um, and then and then the, here's this this guy that pops up. His name is Derek, and he's like, yeah, I can code, um, but I really want to support you know our partners in our deployment. Like, how can what can I do? And we were like, okay. <laughs> I, I remember it being a bit of a of a of a moment, you know, for the organization. Uh, and um, and and as I recall, Derek, I think the role that you stepped into wasn't one that was defined in any way. It wasn't one that had a, a structure or an onboarding <laughs> or, or um, a system around it. Uh, and then you kind of just dived in and helped to define that from the beginning. I'm, I'm curious what your, what your recollection were, was of, of those first couple, first couple of weeks or months with us. For me, it was perfect and exactly what <laughs> I had been looking for. It was um, an opportunity to really just run with it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I landed in Boston, got a laptop, got an Android phone. Oh, no, wait. At the time, it wasn't Android at all. We were working on Nokia. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I got, got a laptop. <laughs> Java phones. Got, uh, got, a, got a Nokia. And, um, and off we went to India. I really had no idea what, what was in store. <laughs> Um, at the, I don't think any of us did. And at the time, it was a USAID uh, had funded this developing innovation ventures grant to Demagi. Um, and the whole concept was to uh, provide seed funding for pilots, pilot programs in India uh, to use mobile phones uh, for, um, I'm not sure if the 
if the specific target of the grant was maternal and child health, uh, but that was that was what the the partnerships that Damagi had in India were all about maternal and child health. Um, and yeah, and and I remember this being just sort of at the very beginning of our work in in India, and obviously it, it evolved a lot <laughs> um, from from some of, from some of that beginning that we had together. Yeah, it sure did. I, I when I arrived in India, it was basically um, I mean we did the an initial pilot uh, together in Sitapur, and yeah, and and I just have to say like you know again you and I both having worked for larger, more mature organizations since then, you know, like when anyone starts a new job, you, you know, you kind of expect somebody to help you with your business cards or your visas or, you know, just like some of the basics of setting up life in a completely new country on the other side of the world. And Derek, I, I've, I've, I've uh, both fond and when I think about it, kind of horrifying <laughs> uh, recollections just of, of you and I going out there and uh, and doing that pilot together. I remember, you know, like I would I would just be like banging away at the computer and 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 you'd be responsible for going out and actually getting the health workers to use the application and and running the trainings and using the language that you picked up. And you know, we didn't really set you up for that at all. You know, like it was one of those things where you. As you said, you needed to run with it. You needed to, to figure it out as you were there. And then, and, and then I remember after you know the two weeks that was the kickoff of that project, I left. And and then there you were in India, sort of figuring out your own way forward. I guess much like you'd done in in Panama, um, and and what you and what you must have done in Mexico, yeah. but with a little bit more direction. <laughs> yes, maybe. Yeah, very very little, uh, perhaps. Um, <laughs> you know, most of the direction that I got was from the uh, was from the local implementing partners that were running the programs um, uh, in uh, in the in the various different cities and and sites where where the pilots were underway. Um, and uh, you know, I had a I had a stipend from Demagi, uh, which I used to cover my lodging and and meals and a small stipend, a small stipend. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I made that stipend last, um, <laughs> uh, costs are pretty low in India. So I, I stayed in cheap hotels and, uh, ate, you know, ate in canteens. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just spoke with, with, uh, with local individuals, I mean, I really, I really dove straight into the culture and um, you know, spent a lot of time just listening to people talk and and um, yeah. learning words through repetition uh, <laughs> and hearing. And within three months, and, and Derek, I've never, I've never asked you about this directly, but I've, I've heard the story, which I'd, I'd love for you to either deny or provide details on. But I, I, I'm, I'm told that you know, as part of your, your work with the community health, with the community health programs, you know, as part of like the deep ethnographic engagement with the community, um, you spend, you spend a good amount of time living in, in the villages with the health workers to understand how they worked and, and their motivation, and specifically, I think something about getting very very sick <laughs> possibly from some food poisoning is that is that a true story or is that rumor and myth oh i've i've gotten very sick in india many times uh <laughs> regrettably uh, one of many stories <laughs> yeah i have learned a lot <laughs> i learned a lot in my experience in india not just about language and about uh the needs of healthcare workers and health facilities but on uh 
food preparation and um, <laughs> and and knowing what food is safe to eat or not. Um, I now that's a life skill. <laughs> that is a big life skill, especially for for those who enjoy travel. I got very ill in Sitapur with giardia and I lost Oof. some twenty pounds. Um, oh wow. Mm, that's scary. And unfortunately, you know, Giardia is kind of hard to get rid of and basically lived with oh, it man. for a year and a half. I tried a couple of different treatments, but inevitably, uh, you know, it either didn't go away or I got reinfected. Um, some 60 plus percent of, of the Indian population lives with Giardia uh, as a fact of life. Um, mm. So uh, gotcha. it's, it's, uh, it's unpleasant, but uh and for the most part, it won't kill you. Um, so <laughs> people live with it. Well, I I appreciate that you maintain a good relationship with Demagi and have never have never called us out for not providing you with appropriate healthcare or or food orientation. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the things the things you do in the line of your work, Derek, it's very impressive. But for me, I wasn't there because of Demagi. I was there because that was the life I wanted, and if I would. Mm. If there was an organization who was willing to support my my time there financially and also give me meaningful work to do, then I wanted that to be a part of my life. Awesome. And that's 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 kind of the way that I I felt about that whole experience and my two years at Demagi is, um, is, is it was a, it was a it was a great part of the life that I was leading, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't the the thing that kept me there. Hmm. And while in India, it it was just exactly what I was looking for. Um, the the uh, the opportunity that we had to deploy mobile phone applications for maternal health was a vehicle um, for uh, for for me to learn learn you know dig into local culture, dig into local language, and the 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 mandate that we had for these pilot programs was to standardize health messaging, um, health information and uh, guidance that health workers provide to to the members of their community um, on things like safe pregnancy and and safe delivery and uh, other uh, risks and, and danger signs that some problems might be developing and the importance of nutritional supplements and so on. And yeah. this this language, right? This this message is is very uh, well researched. It comes from uh, from uh, the medical field, from academics. Uh, we know what's good and, uh, for um, uh, pregnant women and and for members of a community to to improve their health. The challenge is in remote villages. Uh, that message doesn't translate easily. And for individuals who have not had the education or the exposure to the terminology that's used in, the, in that messaging, um, it's very difficult to understand. Um, and my right. mission as part of this work was to make those messages um, understood and in, in a completely local context. And I learned in that process how different that language uh, and understanding can be even on a village to village basis, you know, from 
50 kilometers apart from each other, how different the words needed to be, how different the tone and the way a message was delivered needed to be. Um, and I, I, I spent a lot of time producing multimedia. I had a microphone, uh, I had a laptop with some audio editing software on it, and I would spend time translating um, uh, messages uh, from English into Hindi uh, and from Hindi into local dialect and local vocabulary using uh, the, the mm. um, uh, with uh, nurses and health workers who are based in those villages and those communities. Um, we would sit down for hours and go through the messaging and translate the words. And I would explain what some of the words uh, were and what the message was intended to mean. And then we would write it up in the local dialect. And then we would uh, huh. record the messages. Um, and I would get volunteers from the village. I would get um, <laughs> prominent community leader. Uh, I would get a health worker. Nice. I would get other individuals that I just heard speaking and they had a great voice and it was very articulate and easy <laughs> to hear. And I would record hundreds, hundreds of takes of people reading these messages. And then I would trial the messages with individuals from the community and ask them, you know, whose advice would you take? Who would you prefer to listen to, <laughs> speaker A or speaker B? And find nice. the messages that work the best and uh, have people recount to me what the messages meant and find those that would be the most easily understood. Fascinating. It sounds like you've got all the backings of a social behavior change or marketing career as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way, but, uh, but perhaps you're right. Yeah. And for me, it was just great to be able to, to learn those dialects and the words and, and, and how they changed. It's just a fascinating part of the experience for me. How's your work evolved since then? So I, I, since then, I eventually left India after a couple of years. Um, and uh, returned to New York um, for a couple of years after that, where I did some more work in medical research. And uh, I, I then joined, um, I was working for, for uh, Mount Sinai Hospital um, here in New York City. And uh, I, uh, unfortunately, in New York City, there's, there's not a ton of uh, international health development jobs. Um, hmm. uh, so... I, I moved back into medical research just to get a, a foothold back in the U.S. Um, and I, uh, that makes sense. I ended up, uh, you know, I moved to New York because I really wanted to invest in a meaningful relationship in my life. That's a great reason. After a few years in New York, I, of course, was then ready again to, to set out. Um, <laughs> can only can only stay <laughs> never long. a dull moment. That's right. And <laughs> not that not that New York is dull. <laughs> let's let's be clear here. <laughs> exactly, New York is is one of my favorite cities in the world, uh, but it is mm. just one city, and there is mm. so much more uh, in this world to see and experience, and so many other amazing cities and and places to to visit and to live in. And um, I wanted to take advantage of the international health development field uh, to, uh, to do that. Hmm. So what did, what did you do then? 
I joined Vital Wave. There was a mm -hmm. big project that was um, starting in Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Malawi. Um, so I joined the team. I had come across Vital Wave, and, my... and and can yep. And can you just give like a little introduction to Vital Wave? Absolutely. Um, I, I had actually first come across Vital Wave uh, in my work at Damagi. Um, uh, in some of the research that VitalWave had published. Uh, it's a professional services organization that focuses on the application of digital technology uh, for development. Um, most of VitalWave's clients and, and customers are ministries of health or uh, ministries of education uh, in low and middle income countries. Uh, as well mm -hmm. as uh, foundations and development uh, organizations like USAID and UN foundations and so on. And gotcha. the work focuses on applying technology to solve some of the, uh, some of the challenges in, uh, in um, the development sector, uh, building infrastructure and using information to improve the efficiency of programs, especially in areas where uh, budgets are small. Sounds right up your alley. Yeah, and it was a it's a great group of great group of people um, with for whom I have a lot of uh, a lot of professional respect, and it was uh, um, the timing just worked out worked out well. This this project work came up, uh, and uh, and I had spoken to uh, Brooke Partridge, the CEO of Vital Wave, about about it and about about leading part of it and jumped on board and effectively um, gave, you know, gave VitalWave carte blanche and said, wherever I need to go, I'll go there. And <laughs> I want to get back out into the field. And off you went. And off I went. <laughs> Drawing from your experiences in this field, uh, do you have any advice um, for other young professionals in this space um, who, you know, might be interested in, in technology and doing good um, based on your career? Do you have, if you were talking to, you know, young 24 year old version of yourself, <laughs> what kind of, uh, what kind of career advice might you give that person? Uh, well, I would say uh, to anyone who is looking at this, uh, this profession as a, as an opportunity to get out there and see what, is really going to make a difference. Um, we mm. get so accustomed to um, high-end mobile phones and instantaneous downloads and very well-designed user interfaces and technology. Uh, it's really easy to forget that these these costly technologies um, and the inf internet infrastructure on which they run are really not available. Um, to the majority of the population of the planet. And if you're right. interested in making a difference, it, it is worth spending some time in areas where you can really understand what's available and what those constraints are. Couldn't agree more. To wrap up um, our episode, we have a few rapid fire questions. And so these are questions which uh, we could spend a lot of time on, but maybe just to get you know some high level quick thoughts. First question for you is whether you have any requests um, that you would make for donors or policymakers who might be listening to this. Yes, I would say please fund infrastructure, um, internet connectivity, mm. power solutions, even 
things like roads. Um, these are largely missing in the environments where we work, and they're ultimately required for any and most of the tech for development space in order to effectively run. I can't tell you how many projects, all of the projects perhaps, I've worked on in my <laughs> entire career, there's always one common challenge, internet connectivity is not reliable, power is not reliable. <laughs> but yet donors and policymakers continuously fund uh, technologies that are focused on data and, um, and programming and analytics and things that require data to be transferable easily and rapidly, uh, but yet they're somehow limited um, to funding just the technology and are unable to mm. fund the infrastructure that goes underneath it. And I think that there could be a better model that would allow uh, funders uh, to um, invest in the necessary underlying infrastructure as well as the technology that's going to get them to the ends of uh, to their goals. Great point. And often the infrastructure will outlast the particular generation of one technology or another. And have many other benefits. Is there a common implementation mistake that you see early stage professionals or early stage projects making you would caution against? One thing that I see again and again is, um, and have and have uh, also faulted on myself, um, <laughs> is this expectation that you will be there forever to continue to support a project. Mm. Uh, a lot of implementations and tools get built uh, and run with no real end in sight um, and the expectation that you'll continue to be able to support it. Um, and I, I think that can be a real problem because you see great projects that ultimately fail uh, because they don't get sustained uh, funding, which they need in order to be continued. And, uh, and that, yeah. that makes that, that d defeats um, uh, trust. Um, and it makes it more difficult mm -hmm. to, for people to uh, want to invest in, in other projects. Um, yeah. So I, and, and hurts the overall sustainability of the program. That's right. So I like to really focus on packaging, you know, with every with every project that I work on, how how within the time frame of the project can it be tied up with a bow and handed over uh, with clear instructions and a maintenance guide and uh, and, a, and a budget for how it will be maintained um, beyond the life of a project. Nice. Is there a trend that you would point to in this industry? Is there, is there a thing that you'd suggest other people look out for that might be different five or 10 years from now for those working in technology, poverty, and health? Data science and algorithm development uh, is going to change this entire field in five to 10 years. I've spent the past five years of my life focusing on data use and how to take thousands of data points that are captured in a variety of different systems, integrate them together into databases, and then uh, uh, do calculations and extract meaningful reports and visualizations that allow someone to make informed decisions. And ultimately, that's very difficult to do. And it's fraught with challenges like data quality, poor data quality, or inadequate education, or inadequate internet connectivity to allow the data to go where it needs to go. 
And I think that um, one major um, uh, technological solution to a, a host of those problems is the development of algorithms uh, that can interpret the data and present um, recommendations on what those data mean and how those data should be used rather than putting that responsibility on an individual who uh, is undercapacitated mm -hmm. to deal with the large quantities of data that are at their fingertips. And it's also quite exciting how, how low cost some of those tools can be, which is great to see. Would you like to offer a, a shout out or a kudos to another mover or shaker in this field? I'd like to offer my congratulations to uh, a colleague working for the Ministry of Health and Child Care in Zimbabwe uh, by the name of Robert Gungora. Uh, he has just been recently promoted as a, a deputy director for health informatics and telemedicine. And um, I've been working with him for the past six months on a project in Zimbabwe and have just seen um, uh, the dedication uh, that he puts into the work. And it's no surprise uh, to me to see how quickly uh, the electronic health record uh, system and technologies in Zimbabwe are evolving uh, with the hard work of Dr. Gangora and many of the other people uh, that he works with at the Ministry of Health and Child Care. Nice, awesome, great to hear. Last question for you is uh, if you have any recommended reading, maybe a book or a blog or a podcast, either related to this work or just something you're reason reading from personal interest that you're enjoying. Uh, sure. I, I recently listened to a podcast called The Ultimate Swatting from uh, Flash Forward, huh. which is about kind of a futuristic scenario about the potential elimination of mosquitoes worldwide. And I work on huh. malaria elimination, and a lot of malaria elimination is <laughs> killing mosquitoes. And I, yeah. I just found it to be a, a, an interesting and fun two-sided debate about the benefits and potential risks of wiping off an entire species or several species from the face of the earth. <laughs> I'm happy to share the link. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd love to to check it out. Thank you so much, Derek, for taking the time to chat today. It was really enjoyable just hearing the whole arc of all the different places you've gone and the journeys you've taken and the decisions that you've made along the way. I really appreciate you opening up and, and sharing your story with us. You're very welcome, Marina. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you'd like to find out more about our guests or their work, you can download the show notes on our website at aidevolved.com. This is also where you can go to subscribe to the podcast or to get notifications when a new episode is ready. Please also feel free to get in touch with me if you have any feedback or questions about the episodes. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.